It is very good to see everybody out. Even uh, Mark and Jenny would be would be shocked to see that we we can get along without them. No, uh, no, no. They, they're uh, I'm so happy to have uh, Mark and Jenny as a part of our uh, as a part of our congregation, um, and they're they're a vital part of our congregation. But even uh, even when they're out of town for a week, we got a good crowd here. Um, I'm really happy about that. Really good. Uh, to just to see everybody out and to uh, get to study a little bit of God's Word. We got to make a little progress in Romans this morning in class. Um, and I want to, in my lesson today, give you a little preview of where we're going to go after we finish Romans. We're about halfway through Romans right now, and I think the second half will be will move a little quicker than the first half, because especially after you get at, uh, you know past uh, chapter 12 or so of, of Romans, um, everything becomes a lot more straightforward and, and, and practical. We've got a long way to go, so I'm not getting too far ahead of myself here. But I want to just go ahead and tell you so that you know, when we finish Romans, uh, the, the Romans Bible class that we're doing right now, I want to go in a harmonized way um, through the ministry of Jesus uh, from the time of the beginning of His great Galilean ministry to the time of His death and resurrection. We'll do that as a Bible class after we finish Romans. We'll go through um, Jesus's entire gospel ministry um, as slow as we need to, and we will. Um, we will. Uh, you know, I hope that'll be a beneficial study for everyone. Um, I'm certainly excited about it. And up until then, um, I'm gonna from time to time, this won't be all I do in my sermons, but sporadically I'm going to give you uh, some of the material that, uh, that I've prepared already uh, for this study, um, and some, some material about things that happened before the proper beginning of Jesus' great Galilean ministry um, as some, some kind of scene setting, some groundwork laying. Um, for what we're going to do in that class when we finally get there. And I'm going I'm to preach a lesson this morning um, that is in that vein. This is sort of the first of these sort of preemptive lessons that I'm going to teach, um, foreshadowing a little bit of what we're going to do when we get there uh, studying through the Gospels. So uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is the beginning of the gospel, and we're going to take our lesson from mainly from Mark, verse chapter one, verses one through six. We're going to go a few other places too um, in the gospels, especially in uh, Matthew and Luke, um, and that's where our lesson will be will be from this morning. Um, I want to talk about the context, the setting in which the, the term gospel um, and, and the phenomenon of the gospel comes about, which is first century uh, Palestine. Um, and specifically today, we're going to talk, and in the coming weeks, we're going to talk some too, about John the Baptist as a precursor to the gospel message which would come in Christ. And so this morning as we discuss the beginning of the gospel, let's read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and honey. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some uh, manuscripts add the, the Son of God, which is certainly an accurate way to describe Jesus Christ. But I think before we even begin to talk about Jesus' ministry and what it means for us and, and, and what the things that he taught there and the things that he did, um, which the things that Jesus, we want to separate oftentimes, you know, the sayings and parables of Jesus from the miracles of Jesus, but the miracles themselves were teachings as well. Um, so these things are all, these things that Jesus did are all one, and they are all united under the banner of uh, the gospel, that good news which is imparted to us through the life and ministry of Christ. But that gospel begins before Jesus even began his earthly work. There was a forerunner who came before him. And when we talk about the gospel and the saving power of the gospel, it's important that we know what these terms mean. So when we talk to people about the gospel, what is the gospel? Um, it comes from, from this Greek word, which you're going to laugh at my pronunciation. I normally don't try to pronounce Greek words because I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, but this one is important enough that I'll give it a crack. Evangelon, or evangelon, uh, depending on how you uh, transpose that, that U or, or V. It's where we get our word evangelism. And it means good news or good message or good word. So what is the word? Um, the message, the good news of the gospel, we'll just go ahead and say, to give a brief definition, is, in brief, the good news that human beings can be forgiven of their sins. That a prophesied Messiah is coming, slash, has arrived, and that the kingdom of God is coming quickly, slash, is here, depending on what time we're talking about in the delivery of this message. And then when we talk about the Christ, that Jesus is Christ, we call him Christ, what do we mean by that? What is the Christ? Well, the Christ is an idea within the idea of the Jewish Messiah. The Messiah means Savior, Liberator. Um, the, and so there was an idea that one would come to save and to liberate uh, Israel from her oppressors. But then within that was the idea that, that the one who came to save would be an anointed one or one who was set apart, sanctified. In an ancient Hebrew context, people who were anointed were priests or kings, and Jesus would be both. Uh, he would be anointed, set apart for service to the Lord um, in a special, unique way um, that no one else has been or would be. The Messiah would liberate and save and then he would reign as the anointed one. And that carried with it an idea of kingship. There was a, an expectation among um, Jews and Samaritans and many of the people groups living in, uh, in, in Roman Palestine, as it was called at this time, um, that there would be a king, a physical king, who would come and who would get, uh, get uh, Palestine out from under the yoke of Rome. And that would secure uh, peace and prosperity for the Jewish people specifically um, and ensure peace in that region and maybe peace across the whole world. Um, people had different ideas about what this would look like. 
But there was a, uh, a miraculous intervention coming. God was going to intervene in history. Um, this was a common belief that people had at the time, and they were looking for it, seeking it. Their ideas about what the Messiah would be would be proven um, limited in, in, in their vision um, by Jesus. Jesus would show to them that, that the Messiah who was prophesied and the Messiah who was coming into the world um, would not be the one expected by men. But Christ was that Messiah and the fulfillment of those prophets. So when we say Jesus is Christ, we say that he is our king, he is our Lord, he has been set apart and anointed as such for this purpose by the will of God. And then we say, what is the Son of God? What do we mean when we say that this gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? This has historically been expressed um, in terms of the, the Godhead or the Trinity and with the Son as the second person there. You won't find that, uh, that sort of paradigm uh, it, in the New Testament per se, but indications of it are very clearly in the New Testament. The easiest way to understand this, and I think the way that the New Testament uh, uh, bears this idea out, is that God has at least three definable characters or, or persons, if, if, you, if you will. Um, the first being Father God, that which pre-exists and is unchanging and governing and reigning sovereign over all creation as a wise Father. Then we have Son God, that which advocates, that which brings forth, that which goes beside, um, called an advocate, the champion God of humanity, which, which Christians believe came to earth as the Son of Man and Messiah. And then Holy Spirit God, or God the Spirit, which is active in creation, directing all things to the will of the Father, invisible in its movements, but tangible in its results. It is tangible in God's providence and in God's ability to give insight and wisdom. And these things, while we might define them as three separate characters or persons within God, are all one. They operate as one. Um, but they are three, uh, three different um, characteristics or persons which we can uh, imagine in trying to wrap our minds around the complexity and the largeness of God and of his work and of his will. Um, and I think that, that, that Scripture bears out that these persons are, are distinct and that we can understand them as such. Um, if you have further questions about that, we, we can talk about it after. But I think that's a pretty good baseline definition of, of uh, for, for our purposes here today, um, what we mean when we say God the Son. God the Son, or, or the Son of God, is that one which comes down from heaven and which advocates for us, which saves us. Um, actively by intervening in human affairs and in the affairs of this earth. He does that at a specific point in time, um, and it will be a few years after what we are going to call today the beginning of the gospel, a year or two after. But the, the ministry of John the Baptist kicks off this entire um, movement, this tinderbox, if you will, of spiritual um, revival, and we see the exact time that that happens in Luke 3 and verse 1. Uh, you don't have to, to, to turn there if you don't want to, but um, we can see in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region 
of, of Ituria, or Ituaria uh, and, uh, and uh, Trachonitis, uh, and uh, Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. So we have specific rulers given uh, to help us pinpoint an exact year. And uh, Okay, so Philip and Lysanias are not going to factor much into this story, um, but Herod is going to be, uh, the, and the Herodian family in general will be quite important. Pontius Pilate will be quite important to uh, the story of Jesus, specifically his crucifixion. And in order to pinpoint this time frame, the fact that Tiberius is given as Caesar is very useful as well. Tiberius Caesar lived between uh, 45 and, uh, uh, 45, 47 BC and 37 AD. He reigned as emperor from 14 AD to 37 AD. Uh, he was famous as a, as a general before he became uh, emperor, and he entered the role at, uh, of emperor as Augustus's adopted son. Uh, Pliny called him the gloomiest of men, and according to Roman historians, he was very given to much debauchery and cruelty um, and sort of let the empire run on autopilot, so to speak. Um, so it was a time of great decadence and uh, debauchery and um, sort of no one at the wheel, so to speak, in, in, in the Roman Empire um, when, when Jesus uh, begins his work, when John the Baptist begins his work. So the 15th year of, of Tiberius Caesar's reign would have been between September of 28 AD and September of 29 AD. So we can pinpoint the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry to that specific year. Now, uh, just to give you an idea of where we're at, I don't know if you could see that map very well or not, um, but uh, uh, much of the story of Jesus will uh, occur. First, we'll have the great Galilean ministry in the north, then there will be subsequent ministries in Judea and Peria and ultimately in Jerusalem itself um, in the south of, of, of uh, Judea and Palestine. Um, but this whole area is governed by someone named Pontius Pilate, who again becomes very important later in the story. And he is going to govern under Tiberius as governor of Judea from 27 AD to 37 AD. And he's the highest authority in this region of the world that Jesus lived in. Um, the governor was, of course, I mean, the emperor, of course, was always the highest authority in the Roman Empire, but in, in Judea, that's very far away from Rome, and the, the highest direct authority is going to be Pontius Pilate. And so he oversaw a, a period of rising tension between Roman power and between local people groups in Judea. And so this gives us an idea of the kind of atmosphere that this, this movement begins during. Luke Three and verse two. This was also in the high priest, uh, or in the high priesthood of Caiaphas, who will come to be a character that, that factors in to the story of Jesus later. Um, but during this time, another specific marker is given. During this time, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's Luke three and verse two. So again, we need to define some terms. What do we mean when we say the word of God came to John in the wilderness? Well, in this context, the word of God means a message from God or a message to give to the people from God in the sense that the prophets of ancient times also received messages from God, things that it was imperative they must declare to the people. And God gave them the means to do so. 
a divine revelation of wisdom, a message or insight for a particular time and place. This is what the prophets did. The uh, society around them had grown corrupt in various ways. We see this throughout the prophets. God gives them a message to proclaim, and they proclaim it. And prophecy builds on itself as it, as it goes. Remember, prophets develop after Israel gets a king. The, king, the prophet's role uh, was to uh, declare to the king and to the people um, what needed to occur to avoid God's judgment and to be brought back into God's good grace. Um, and they do this as Israel, uh, as the ancient Israelite society, as we see in Kings and Chronicles, um, devolves into uh, wickedness. But there had not been a universally accepted prophet for many years at the time of John the Baptist. There is what we often refer to as a, a period of silence. There was still spiritual literature being written at this time, but there was none who all the people regarded as an inspired prophet who spoke the words of God to the people. This, you know, in the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all the other prophets, we have recognition of one's authority as a mouthpiece from God. We do not see that for some 400 years or more um, leading up to the time of the beginning of the gospel when this message first started to be proclaimed. John received his word in the wilderness, in the desert, in the waste. And there's a small lesson to be learned there for us, is that John went to the wilderness seeking a word. He put himself in difficult conditions because he wanted to be in the right setting to receive a word from God. And we don't receive a word from God in the same way that John did today. We know that. But when we're in a difficult situation, when we're in the desert, so to speak, when we are in the wilderness... That is often precisely the time when we'll have a breakthrough spiritually, when we will see something that we never saw before, when we will rededicate ourselves um, to God. And so sometimes when we find ourselves through, uh, not because we wanted to be there, but just because life took us there, in a desert, in a dry place, in a waste, well, we better start listening to God. Maybe He's got something to say to us about all this. So John was listening for a word from God and he received it um, in the time frame that we discussed. John was the son of Zechariah. He was called John the Baptist. He probably didn't call himself John the Baptist. Um, that was probably something other people called him. Uh, but uh, he was set apart by the fact that he did baptize. Um, so it seems fitting. He, he lived, we don't know exactly when he was born, but he, we know that he died sometime in 30 or 31 AD uh, on the orders of Herod. Um, he was a part of this long prophetic tradition of, of wilderness wandering, of being outside of the society and um, uh, uh, separating oneself from the city um, in order to gain a closeness with God. And he called people to repent. And that word repent has several layers of meaning to it, but it, it means to reconsider, to think differently afterward than before, and to turn oneself toward the will of God, to open oneself to God, to be used by Him. 
In, in other words, it signals an entire change of thinking and of life. Um, it, it, it signals a desire to stop being what you have been and to become something else. He baptized people. And that word baptize, um, as I'm sure many of us are aware, means to immerse or to wash fully, completely, um, people for sins. Um, it, we're told later that they confessed their sins coming to him and being baptized. Um, and he, John the Baptist even baptized Jesus, and he's called the forerunner of Christ. We talked a little bit about Jesus' baptism in a lesson several weeks ago, and we may come back to it again, um, uh, or we may not. It, I, I don't know yet. But um, it's important, though, that we understand John was a real historical figure who did these things, and we have very good information from the Gospels about what he did uh, and what the nature of his ministry was. So in the days of John, the in those days, the days that we've been discussing, the time frame we've been talking about, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. That's Matthew five, or excuse me, Matthew three, verse one. Um, so John came in the sense of he arrived. He appeared publicly as a prophet and teacher. He proclaimed, or announced, or heralded the message from God, and so. I'm going to preach it myself for just a second here. When I stand up here behind this pulpit, when I do what I'm doing now, I try, and please let me know if I ever fall short, I try every time I stand up here to, in some way or another, proclaim or announce the good news of Jesus. Um, and so, when we, when we are bringing the word before those that we know, those that we would like to influence toward Christ, we remember that it's, our job is not to shake our finger at people and to uh, you know, shout them down about their sin, but rather to proclaim to them the good news. The good news that they can be freed from their sins. They can be washed. Um, and to celebrate that good news. That's part of what's implied with this word. The proclamation, the announcement, is everyone needs to know this thing. It's important enough that it needs to be shouted from the mountaintop, so to speak. So that is the work of preaching. That is what it means to preach, is to proclaim, to announce, to herald, to celebrate the good news of God. But the news part of good news means that it was something that wasn't previously known. Something that had to be revealed to mankind. So, what was... What was John's big breakthrough? What was his message from God? What did he reveal that was not already known? The answer, I think, is in Matthew 3, 2. His message in brief was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We talked about what repentance means. It means to reconsider, to think differently, to open oneself toward the will of God. Kingdom of Heaven is a somewhat more complex concept, in, in, at least in Jesus' usage of it. But I think John probably meant that the Messiah would come and bring about peace, at least in Judea and Palestine, and maybe peace over the whole earth, um, and that this would be the expected Jewish Messiah, that he would be a conquering king who would deliver um, Palestine from its, its subjugation. I may be wrong about that, and that is a, a speculation that I'm making, but that was the common uh, 
Jewish conception of, of what this would be like at the time. Um, and also, later on, there is a, a passage which indicates that John did not fully understand the nature of the kingdom that Christ was bringing, because uh, at a certain point he's going to, from prison essentially, ask Jesus if he really is the Messiah. And it seems like the reason that he is having some doubt is that Jesus is doing a lot of healing and a lot of preaching to the poor and not a lot of wrath and vengeance. And John is saying, where is the wrath that was promised? And Jesus answers him, if you go back and you look at Isaiah, the Messiah is to preach good news to the poor and to heal the sick. And that must be accomplished first before the justice and before the vengeance that will come. That has to be explained to John, and so that's where I'm getting this. I think John really conceived of the Messiah as one who would come and who would conquer. But with that misconception being said, if, if that was John's misconception, the gospel, the message that he preached, was still useful, was still the, the, the forerunning, the precursor of Christ's gospel. Because he preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, or had drawn near, or is close by, or is within reach. That's what at hand means. John said, the Messiah is coming, and you're not ready for him. But he's going to be here really soon. You have to repent. Because it is coming. What has been prophesied will be accomplished. John, I don't think, understood everything about how that would be accomplished, but he understood that it was coming and that it would be accomplished, and that there was a great preparation that was required for the coming of the Messiah. There is also, for us, a great preparation that is required for the coming of the Messiah. We have access to all of Christ's teachings. We've been given everything necessary for life and for godliness by Him. But we often forget. We often need to rededicate ourselves, remind ourselves that He will return, that He will come again. And when He comes again, He will bring the wrath and the vengeance that was prophesied about the Messiah as well. Um, so, there's that. But returning to our text in Mark, Mark 1, we'll skip over for a moment um, the Old Testament passage that is quoted. We'll come back to that, though, because... I actually plan on preaching an entire lesson this evening about Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 12. Um, and I'm calling it the gospel in the Old Testament. Um, and I, I might sporadically do that as well, tying in some of the major messianic prophecies into this story. And we'll talk about um, what, what that prophecy in Isaiah meant to um, people in its, in its context in, in ancient um, Israel. We'll talk about uh, what it meant in terms of John the Baptist as a forerunner. And we'll talk about what it means for us today. But in Mark 1, verse 4, John appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So again, baptize means to dip or to immerse. Um, particularly um, for, in the Jewish world, it meant to do so for ritual cleansing. Baptism was something that was already being practiced on some level before John came. You can even find archaeological evidence of very old baptistries that predate even the time of, of Christ. They were not used in the same way that we use them. 
you could baptize any part of yourself or anything you wished in order to sanctify it for God's purposes. People would do this with, with objects um, with, uh, and with their bodies um, wholly on some occasions for certain purposes and, and ceremonies and occasions. But it was not a general cleansing. It was not a general washing for all of one's failures, all of one's wrongs. That was viewed by the majority of Jews as being covered under the Day of Atonement. Um, John, though, is baptizing people and forgiving their sins. He says their sins are forgiven. And for many in the Jewish world, that would have appeared like John is ascribing to himself authority to forgive sins, which many Jews would ascribe to Yahweh alone. This is going to be a problem in Jesus' ministry as well. He also claims to have the power to forgive sins, and that is also viewed as blasphemy by the Jewish mainstream. He practices this cleansing um, and states that his baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's been much made about the exact nature of John's baptism. I think we've, we've, we've overcomplicated it slightly. Um, of course, John's baptism did not bring the same cleansing, that same final forgiveness that we receive in the baptism of Christ. It was incomplete yet. But it was, and its purpose was, the scriptures are quite clear about this, to prepare the way for the baptism of Christ. The baptism of John and the Gospel of John um, was a, a, a man-made uh, foundation on which the divine built. And by that I mean it would be very easy for a student of John to become a student of Jesus. Once one had accepted the things that John was teaching, the things that Jesus taught followed very closely thereon. In fact, this whole idea of being baptized because of, uh, out of repentance for the forgiveness of your sins um, is something that Jesus approves of and institutes, but it's something which he almost uh, seems to expect everyone to understand because they've been aware of John, um, because they have uh, come to John and heard him preach and teach. So the idea with John's baptism is that human beings have the authority to forgive one another, to wash one another for the purpose of entering into a relationship with God the Father. Now, it's not fully accomplished until Christ comes, but John teaches this idea and institutes it that one may be washed not in water set apart or blessed by priests, but one may be washed in the Jordan River, a regular river like any other, and come out cleansed. John was appointed for this purpose by God, and so I don't want us to run with this too far, but I do think that this was John's teaching, that common people could be baptized in a common river and be forgiven by their common God, who is over all and in all. And this is in conformance with the, the prophecies that were foretold in Isaiah, which is quoted in uh, Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. And actually, it's sort of a stitching together of Malachi 3 
in Isaiah 40. Behold, I am sending my messenger before you. That's from Malachi 3. And then we switch to Isaiah 40. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The image, we'll talk more about the, the historical context of this prophecy later this, this, this evening. But the image that's being painted by quoting this particular prophecy is that of a royal message bearer who goes before a king. And this was a thing that would happen in the ancient world, that there would be a message bearer sent before the king when the king was being transported somewhere by chariot. You would have a message bearer that would go forth, and he, his role was to do a few things. One of the things he would do is shout to everybody, the king is coming. The king is coming through. Get ready. Prepare yourself. Put on your nicest clothes. Whatever you got to do, the king is going to come through your town. You're going to get to see it. The other thing that they would do is remove obstacles from the way of the king. They would take branches out of the road. They would uh, level places that were bumpy uh, or places that had potholes. Um, they would fill in um, so that the king would have a smooth ride into wherever he was going. There wouldn't be any problems or any delays. Um, the, chariot, the king's chariot isn't going to break down. He's going to get exactly where he needs to get when he needs to get there. That's the purpose of the forerunner. That's the purpose of the royal message bearer. Um, they would level the road and remove obstacles. So there was a certain path that the Savior would walk in his life, and, and there was a certain teaching that the, that the Savior would teach, but it wouldn't be easy, and in many cases people weren't prepared to receive it. It would require preparation. It would, would require heralding. It would require a message bearer to go before the king and say, the king is coming. Get yourself ready, for one, and let's get everything out of the way that doesn't lead to this message that the king will proclaim. The culture in which John and Jesus lived and taught was not prepared to receive their message in many ways. There would probably never be a time that would be completely prepared to receive all the things that Jesus had to say. Um, but once a student had accepted the teachings of John, the teachings of Jesus would follow naturally from them. And so I think we miss sometimes the, John's importance in this whole process of uh, bringing forth the gospel. Um, that John created this buzz, John created this following, and then at a certain point John says, I must decrease and he must increase. After he has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, and after followers start going to him instead of John. Luke continues on uh, in his quotation of Isaiah 40, Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be lowered, the crooked will become straight, the rough road smooth. And this is the key thing, Luke 3, 6. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Why must the obstacles be removed? Why does the path have to be straight? What is the purpose? After all, this is God we're talking about. He can take any path He wants, right? He can get over any obstacle He desires. What is the purpose of this forerunner? Well, it's so that all flesh, everybody like you and me, 
every human being can get a good look at the king. Not just that the king comes in any old way, but that the king comes in such a way in which no one can deny his presence and everyone can see him clearly. When John says the kingdom is at hand, he's announcing that God's rescue mission for humanity is about to come to action in the physical realm. The message is about to go forth. And from there, his church will be built. That is quite a message. God is about to interfere in human history to bless us all, to save us all, to bring us all out of the destruction that we had put ourselves in. All flesh will see the salvation of God. And that term, all flesh, leaves no doubt. Every human being is subject to the gospel call. Every human being must see Christ clearly and believe in Him to be saved. We must put our trust in Christ in order to be brought to the rescue that He has desired for us. But it is for all. It is for everyone. Everyone who will, whosoever will, may come and receive the cleansing that is offered in Christ. Back to Mark 1. Mark 1, verse 5. All the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So between repenting, between saying, I want to be changed, I want to be different, I want to be uh, in the will of God and not outside the will of God, I want to have my mind and my heart changed, between that and between the washing... John required people to demonstrate their repentance, their desire for change, by verbally confessing that they were sinners. And we do the same. Again, when one comes to Christ, it's one thing to say within oneself, I'm convicted, I need to be changed, I need to be different in Christ. It's another thing to say before men, I'm a sinner. I need to be changed. To admit, to have the humility to say, I couldn't do it myself. I need someone greater than me to show me how to be righteous. It seems like a small thing, but it is required. It is necessary in order to make real the repentance. In order to bring oneself under subjection of the Savior. Under the authority of the Savior. He brought people to repentance. He had them confess. He baptized them. And he had an interesting wardrobe and diet. He was clothed in camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. This is a, a possible allusion to the spirit of Elijah and the manner of Elijah. And indeed, I think John's logic about baptizing people in the Jordan comes from specifically, I think, the, the account of uh, Naaman, the Syrian, um, in, in the Old Testament, who was cleansed of his leprosy from being dipped in the river Jordan. He was a Syrian. He was an unclean person. And Jesus will go on to point this out um, in the temple at Nazareth, where he is rejected, um, as a way of saying, salvation has always been for all, and the Jews have 
um, deluded themselves over time into thinking that it was only ever meant for them. Um, and to everyone's great uh, anger and, and chagrin, he points this out, and they try to stone him at Nazareth. John, I think, saw this same thing. That if, it, if it's possible for God to cleanse someone of their leprosy, of an incurable disease, by having them dip themselves in a muddy river, then it's possible for us to be cleansed of our inner diseases, of our inner faults, of our inner sickness, by being washed in water. Not as a removal of, of filth from the flesh, but as an appeal to a good conscience before God. John had this strange wardrobe and this strange diet, and I think this had to do with living simply, with filling this mold of a troublemaking prophet uh, who doesn't live according to the concerns and the norms of, of society, uh, of the polite urban society that he was living in, but rather proclaims uh, in a way that cuts against the grain directly the message of God. If you think about what a, what a crazy person John must have seemed to be, he lives out in the wilderness. He eats the strange diet. He wears these strange items of clothing. He doesn't go to anybody to teach them. People come to him. People come to him to hear him speak. And when you get, so you got to walk a long way to get to where he is. And when you get there, he's going to insult you. We're not going to talk about it this morning, but at some point in the future, we'll talk about John's message and what he preached and it was accusatory. It was insulting. Uh, he called those who would come to learn from him a brood of vipers. Um, so, John had a little bit of a crazy thing going on here. But there is a, there's something that, um, uh, in Eastern cultures, people will talk about this sometimes, something called crazy wisdom. And there's a, a very specific thing meant by that. It means a person who lives in a way that's so against the grain of the society that they live in that everybody thinks that they're a crazy person. But when you meet them and when you talk to them, it becomes clear to you that they're not crazy. That they see something that everybody else doesn't see. And so I think that there's something similar going on with John. John has this kind of crazy wisdom where he understands, first of all, that the kingdom of heaven is about to be accomplished. That something incredible is about to happen. That God is about to, again, interfere in human, in human history in a way that he has not before. John understands this. And then rightly from that comes to the conclusion that nothing else is important other than being prepared and making others prepared for the coming kingdom. Everything else may fall to the wayside if we understand that we are entering the kingdom of heaven, the royal reign of God over all things. It was a radical message that John was preaching. And this is the environment into which Jesus came and began to proclaim his message. It is, could be characterized in some ways as an extension of the message that John already preached, but we find the sayings of Christ to be much more complete 
much more beneficial for salvation, much sweeter, much more gracious as the words of the divine being spoken through the mouth of a man of mortal flesh. We'll get more into the mystery of Christ's humanity and His divinity as we go through this study. Um, and once we get into the study of His actual ministry, it'll be very good in class to sort of discuss this in a back-and-forth kind of way. But for today, I think it's important that we close on this note. John preached a radical gospel, a gospel of radical change for the society that he was living in because the society he was living in needed to change radically to be prepared for and acceptable before their Savior. We need to hear change too. We need to be willing to change too in order to prepare for the coming of our Savior and the coming of our Lord. But as important as the baptism of John was, it was not complete. It was not the final baptism, the final gospel that was coming. But in John's baptism and in John's gospel, we see Christ foreshadowed and His salvation foreshadowed. Here. We often say that hearing is the first thing that must occur for one to be saved. And it makes sense. You can't believe a message until you've heard it. That's why John went into the wilderness preaching or proclaiming. But this was a word, a, a good word, without the word. And so it was incomplete. John preached belief. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a proposition to either be believed or rejected. But the kingdom that John proclaimed did not yet have its Prince of Peace. It was not in its final uh, iteration for men to believe. But it was proclaimed before it came to be so that men might believe. John preached repentance. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the mind change that John prescribed was a mind change for the purpose of a further mind change that was to happen in Christ. The living mind of God who came down to declare to us all things that are true and necessary for righteous living. John preached confession. He had them confess their sins. But the confession of John was without a complete and perfect high priest who was without Jesus as our high priest is both without moral compromise, he does not change his standards of what is right and what is wrong. He's an uncompromising judge in his morality and in the goodness of his judgments. And at the same time, he is infinitely full of compassion for us because he was tempted in all ways as were we. He understands what it means to be one of us, what it feels like to be one of us. And so he can both judge us and intercede for us on behalf of our interests before the Father. John's confession was not that. John's confession was an acknowledgement that I have sinned, that I am in need of cleansing, and that the one who will cleanse me finally is on the way, is coming. Now when we confess, we confess the one who is, not the one who is coming. The king who reigns, not the king who will reign. 
That is the difference between our gospel and the gospel of John. And finally, John preached a baptism of repentance. But the baptism of John was without the living water and the Lamb's blood, which is required to cleanse and to make new. When we are buried in baptism, we are raised to new life. And that's accomplished through the blood of Christ. And when we're raised to new life, we then follow after Christ. And when we say follow Christ, what we mean is emulate Him, learn from Him, drink from the living water, which is the words that He spoke and the things that He did. It's an inexhaustible well, which Jesus said creates in you a well which wells up to eternal life. You have your own water source when you take in Christ. He belongs to you, and He replenishes you, leading you to your eternal home. That's the salvation, the rescue, that Christ brought to the world, which He still offers today. But it began with a man who was flesh like you and me, who didn't understand everything perfectly like you and me, but a man who took a stand and said, something is coming. You need to be ready for the coming of the Messiah. We declare to the world, get ready. Repent. Be willing to be changed because the kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is coming. He came, and He is now returning. There are many that we know, and many who we live in this community with, who are not ready for His return. What are we doing to make them ready? What are we proclaiming to them? We proclaim only the message which John proclaimed, which Christ proclaimed, that all men are subject to the gospel call. If you today are subject to the gospel call, if you've not been brought into Christ, if you've not put your trust in Him and in His gospel, if you've not confessed His name, if you've not repented from your sins and tur turned yourself toward the will of God, and if you've not been baptized, brought into His new covenant, um, to follow after Him, um, throughout your days, you're not prepared for the coming of the Messiah. If you have done all those things, but you still feel that you have lost your way, if you feel convicted, if you feel in need of prayer, if you need it, feel in need of support, we can also help you there. We can lift you up in prayer. We can support you. If you have any spiritual need, we ask you, we beg you, please make that known. Take care of that today as we sing the song that's been announced.